Hey Icon, good to be with you today. Uh, if you're new, my name is Justin Anderson and I am the lead pastor here at Icon and uh, it's great to have you today. We are starting a new series that we have entitled Rest, God's Promise for Sinners and Sufferers. And this series is uh, admittedly, full disclosure, ripped from the pages of a new book called Gentle and Lowly uh, by Dane Ortland. And this is a book that I read last year it is fantastic. I highly encourage you uh, to get this book, read through it. We are going to take uh, six big themes from that book, go to the scriptures to see where those themes came from, uh, and, and kind of explore this topic of rest that is offered to God's people, specifically to the sinners and sufferers who need it most. So uh, that's what we're going to do for the next six weeks. Really glad you're here. Uh, and, and I want us to jump off actually from where we left off last week, Easter Sunday, we looked at the story of Lazarus and there's this unique verse and, and every kid who went to Sunday school knows this verse as the shortest verse in the Bible because it's two words, Jesus wept, right? It's one verse. In, and John tells the story of Lazarus by drawing out, in fact, four different times in this short story, Jesus's emotional life, his emotional reaction to the death of his friend Lazarus and the sadness of his friends Mary and Martha, right? It says he wept with them. He, his spirit was moved, that he had compassion on them, that he was grieved. Right? The, talking about the emotional life of Jesus is not something we often think about. We think about kind of theological categories or doctrinal categories. We'll talk about miracles. We'll talk about divinity. We'll talk about uh, arguments about who Jesus was and whether he actually was who he says he was. But one of the things we don't talk about much is his heart, right? his emotional life, his interior life. And so in this story of Lazarus, we see these four mentions in one story of Jesus' emotional life. And I, I know that as I was reading through it, I thought, man, is this an exception, right? Like this is just a moment where, where it was a very emotional moment. Jesus' friend died. And so he feels these emotions. And is John just kind of drawing attention to the exception of this story, or is it broadly uh, a part of the gospel stories and we just haven't noticed it? Well, the answer is the second one. We have actually a lot of moments in the gospel stories that describe Jesus's internal emotional life. And so it doesn't always come out in weeping, though it, this is not the only story in which he cries, but talking about his compassion, his desire, his love for the people around him. So here are just a, a couple of examples in Matthew chapter eight, verses two and three says, and behold, a leper came to him and knelt before him saying, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. And that word will in the Greek is, is desire. Like, do you have a desire to make me clean? Not can you, this is not about Jesus's competency to heal the leper, but do you desire to do that? Which is a very unique question. It says, Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him saying, I will, that same word. I do desire to heal you and be clean. It says, and immediately his leprosy was cleansed, right? So Jesus' desire was for this man to be healed of his sickness. Matthew chapter 9, verse 36 says, when he saw the crowds, Jesus, he had compassion 
for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd, right? So Jesus looks out at all these people and the feeling that he has, and these are, these are sinners and sufferers, right? Like these are not all good people that he just goes, man, they've gotten a raw deal. They're just normal people, right? And he looks out and his, his feeling for them is compassion. Matthew 14, 14 says, when he went ashore, he saw a great crowd and he had compassion on them and healed their sick. Again, he looks out over this crowd and feels compassion, feels mercy, feels love for them. And then finally, Luke 19, verse 41 says, when he drew near and saw the city, Jerusalem, says he wept over the city. Now, Jerusalem, from the very beginnings of the biblical story, is the center of the people of Israel's activity and God's activity in the world. Jesus walks to Jerusalem, sees this city that has been so central to his work through the ages before his incarnation, and he weeps over it. That Jesus was so emotionally moved that he actually wept. Now, we might think, that's fine. But Jesus says and does a lot of other things as well, right? We see his anger. We see his passion in other areas. We see him teach and do a a number of other things. So it, it is a good question to ask, is it fair to make too big a deal of his compassion and tenderness? And I would just say this right at the outset, and we'll hit this throughout the series. Illuminating one part of Jesus does not diminish another right? So maybe some of you are going, yeah, 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 sure. He's got compassion, but he's also got wrath. Okay. True. But does saying he have, he has compassion diminish the wrath? It, it doesn't and, and wouldn't. And, and I, and I would just challenge you out there. If there is anything in you throughout this series that kind of plays the yeah, but game, Like, okay, yeah, sure, Jesus wept. Yeah, sure, Jesus is compassionate. Yeah, sure, Jesus is merciful, but he's also these things. I would just stop. Every time you do the yeah, but, I would just stop yourself and ask, why? Why am I doing this? Why am I playing this game right now? Why why do I feel the need to diminish what is a clear teaching of the scriptures uh, because you think it might uh, make people forget about some other part of Jesus' character or activity that for some reason you care about, especially, especially if you're out there going, yeah, sure, Jesus is compassionate, but don't forget he also has wrath. Like, what's that in you? right? Like, what is it in you? What is it about your story? What is it about your theology? What is it about your personality that doesn't want us to make too big a deal about Jesus's compassion, love, and mercy to make sure we don't miss his wrath and anger and justice? Why is that? Why is that the desire and not the opposite? That's a question I want you to answer for yourself throughout this series, okay? The central aim, of this series and the book Gentle and Lowly is to illuminate what is at the very center of Jesus's heart. And again, just as the disclaimer, just because we say something is at the center of Jesus's heart, like there can only be one bullseye, right? There are second rings and third rings and fourth rings and fifth rings, but there can only be one bullseye. There can only be one thing at the center of who Jesus is. And this series is aimed at illuminating what that is. So the author, Dane Ortland, kind of kicks off the book 
by saying this. In the four gospel accounts given to us in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, 89 chapters of biblical text, there's only one place where Jesus tells us about his own heart. We learn much in the four gospels about Christ's teaching. We read of his birth, his ministry, and his disciples. We are told of his travels and prayer habits. We find lengthy speeches and repeated objections by his hearers, prompting further teaching. We learn of the way he understood himself to fulfill the whole Old Testament. And we learn in all four accounts of his unjust arrest and shameful death and astonishing resurrection. Consider the thousands of pages that have been written by theologians during the past 2,000 years on all of these things. But in only one place, perhaps the most wonderful words ever uttered by human lips, do we hear Jesus himself open up to us his very heart? And it's in Matthew chapter 11, verses 28 through 30. Jesus says this, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Ortland goes on to say, in the one place in the Bible where the Son of God pulls back the veil and lets us peer way down into the core of who he is, we are not told that he is austere and demanding in heart. We are not told that he is exalted and dignified in heart. We are not even told that he is joyful and generous in heart. Letting Jesus set the terms, his surprising claim is that he is gentle and lowly in heart. This is the central aim of this series, to get after that phrase. What does it mean that Jesus is gentle and lowly in heart? And how does that enable him to offer us rest for our souls? Now, before we get into gentle and lowly itself, I want to talk about what Jesus means by his heart, okay? Does he mean his physical heart, the physical organ? No. Is he talking about his feels? Absolutely not, right? When Jesus is talking about his heart, he talks about it in the way that the entire Bible, Old and New Testament, talks about the heart, which is this. The heart is the central seat of a person's affections, desires, and motivations. The heart is what moves you. So when Jesus says that his heart is gentle and lowly, he is talking about what moves him his posture towards us, how he approaches people and situations. It's at the very center of what makes him, him. So this is, this is a description, not just, these aren't just another group of adjectives to add to Jesus's long list, that he is joyful and generous. He is merciful and good. He is all those things. But Jesus one time tells us that his heart which he absolutely knows that everybody uses in this way to say this is the very center of his being, of his affections, his desires and motivations are gentle and lonely. So let's break down these two words, gentle and lowly, in hopes that we can understand the heart of Jesus. First, gentle. 
The word translated here as gentle is used only two other times in the Gospels, both in the mouth of Jesus. First, in Matthew chapter 5, verse 5, in the Beatitudes, he says that the meek will inherit the earth, right? This word for meek is the same Greek word that's translated as gentle. And again, in Matthew 21, 5, he says, Jesus the, Jesus the king is coming to you. He's quoting from Zechariah, the prophecy about Zechariah. Jesus the king is coming to you humble, riding on a donkey, right? So this word gentle is also translated meek and humble. So you can kind of get the, the word cloud idea here of, of the sense in which Jesus is trying to communicate his own heart that his heart is meek, that it is lowly, that it is humble, that it is gentle with us. Now, I wanna break down this word meek because um, it's probably the one that's the most outside of our normal uh, usage of language, but it is packed with meaning, right? Now, often we, and I would say especially men, um, think our options in the world, how we're going to interact in the world uh, exists on a spectrum of passivity and dominance, right? That we get to choose somewhere, how we're gonna respond to a situation at work or a situation in our family, a situation uh, in the car while we're driving. We can go, okay, it's either passivity or dominance. And so someone cuts me off, I can either like just chill and don't, I don't wanna make any trouble and that's what most people in Seattle do, or you can go the opposite direction and honk and cut people off and, and mess with them and go full on road rage, uh, which is what people in every other part of the world do, right? So the, often we think of it on this spectrum. And I would say that is an unhelpful way to think about your options, first of all, um, but also the way in which we might think of meekness. Because we might think of meekness as just the, the, the passive end of that spectrum. So what it would mean to be meek is simply anytime you're cut off, just be cool with it. Anytime someone's bullying you, just step back and you know curl up into a ball. Like that's the best way to get rid of a bully is just lay down in the fetal position, right? Like is that what Jesus is saying, that people who lay in the fetal position will inherit the earth? Uh, absolutely not. Right? And because not only is that not the, the, the definition of the word, but it's not what we see Jesus do at all. Right? So John Chrysostom, who's this uh, uh, Eastern Orthodox teacher, one of the great teachers of the church, says this. He says, he who is not angry, where he, whereas he has cause to be, or when he ca has cause to be, sins. For unreasonable patience is the hotbed of many vices. It fosters negligence and incites not only the wicked, but the good to do wrong. So he goes, if you should be angry because something is wrong, something is broken, something is evil or oppressive, and you're not, you sin, okay? So the vision here is not for passivity. Um, Martin Luther King Jr. said it this way, for evil to succeed, all it needs is for good men to do nothing, right? So the call here uh, to meekness, the call here to the gentleness of Jesus' heart is not a call to passivity, right? The meek instead are strong without having to remind us of their strength. The meek are powerful without being overbearing. The meek are secure so they don't feel the need to preen. The meek know when to speak and when to be silent. 
The meek love passionately, but not wantonly. The meek protect the weak from oppressors. The meek are submissive to true authority without being passive. The meek are respectful and deferential to their elders. The meek are angry about evil and injustice. The meek are confident without giving in to arrogance. The meek embody wisdom and walk in patience. Meekness is desired in a father, a boss, and a king. Meekness is mythologized in Aslan, King Arthur, and Aragorn. Meekness is personified in Jesus. In other words, meekness doesn't mean weakness. The meek simply know the source of their real power. And we hear this in Jesus all the time, right? That he goes, we've been talking about this in John, that, that he says over and over, I don't come on my own authority. I do nothing of my own authority, but only what I'm given by the Father. That even Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, divine in his own right, willfully submits to the Father. Jesus can heal the sick. He can raise the dead. He can forgive sins and yet is willingly submitted to the Father. He acts passionately. He acts powerfully and yet he does not have to flaunt his authority. This is the idea of the meekness or gentleness of Jesus. Secondly, lowly, the lowliness of Jesus' heart. Now, there is a lot of overlap between these two words of gentle and lowly in terms of their translation. It's also translated as humble in James 4, 6, where it says that God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. And that's probably the most common translation of this Greek word. But there's another sense of it that I think is really important for us. It can also describe those who have been kind of pushed down by life or trodden on. Those who, I, I hate to use this word because it's a little buzzy right now, but who have been oppressed. People who have just had life push them down, perhaps by a very real oppressor that intends to do that, perhaps just by the vagaries of life they are pushed down. It's how the Bible describes Mary in Luke 151 or 152, describing her as being of a humble estate. Paul calls the Romans to associate with the lowly in Romans chapter 12, verse 16. So there's this sense that Paul and Mary are both talking about um, the, the people who are just lower on the social kind of stratus, right? They, they are lower on, uh, in the eyes of the world. They are pushed down and not considered important or powerful. Uh, Dane Ortland describes it this way. He says, the point in saying that Jesus is lowly is that he is accessible. For all his resplendent glory and dazzling holiness, his supreme uniqueness and otherness, no one in human history has ever been more approachable than Jesus Christ. There are no prerequisites, no hoops to jump through, B.B. Warfield, commenting on Matthew eleven twenty nine, wrote, No impression was left by his life manifestation more deeply imprinted upon the consciousness of his followers than that of the noble humility of his bearing. The minimum bar to be enfolded into the embrace of Jesus is simply open yourself up to him. It's all he needs. Indeed, it is the only thing he works with. 
It made, this made me think of um, Isaiah talking about the coming Messiah and says there was nothing beautiful about him physically that we would be drawn to him. And I, and I thought about that in, in our culture today. And I think beauty actually does two things. Someone who, a, a woman who is incredibly beautiful or a man who is very handsome, they do, it does two things. One is it attracts us to them, but it also repels us from them right? We are attracted to them at like a very surface level. We want to be near them. We want to be around them. Perhaps we want to be with them, but, but really we're intimidated by it. And so there becomes this block where we can't really get near them because they seem different than us, better than us, bigger than us, more important than us. So we want to be kind of adjacent to beauty. We want to reap the benefits of being near beauty. But when we are really faced with it, people who are beautiful or powerful or impressive are really hard to get near, which is really important because of what Jesus asks us to do. Jesus' call to action in this verse and over and over throughout the scriptures is simply come to me, be near me, be in my presence. The core of the gospel response is to come to Jesus. Yes, he tells us to follow him, to trust him, to believe in him, but the core ask is just to come to him, to draw near to him. This would be a huge ask if he were mostly just impressive and intimidating. A strong man says, trust me, and we do. A powerful man says, follow me, and we will. Jesus, who is gentle and lowly, says, come to me, be with me, sit in my presence with me, and we can. Because we look at him, there's something that is humble. There's something that is meek. There's something that is not attractive. There's nothing externally intimidating. He is a safe person to just be near. Have you ever had those people in your life that you just find yourself opening up to, even though the, the depth of your relationship may not warrant it? That immediately you just sense the safety with them. That there's nothing, they're not trying to be somebody. You're not trying to have to impress them in any way. You can just kind of be with them. This is Jesus. This is the gentleness and lowliness of his heart for us. That there is nothing that would intimidate us from being near him and coming to him. And this is especially important because of who he asks to do it. Go back to verse 28. Jesus says, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden. All who labor and are heavy laden. This is not the call of the powerful. This is not the call of the impressive. Those people who are powerful and big and celebrity or, or impressive people, they're saying those who can do it with me, those who are high capacity leaders, those who are big earners, those who are the smartest and the best come to me. I want to surround myself with the best of the best because those people make me better. It's not Jesus. That's not Jesus. He says, I am gentle and lowly in heart. Come to me all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Now, 
my guess is that every one of us can can identify with that description. I mean, we've said it a thousand times now, how difficult the last year plus now, almost a year and a half has been. We've been dealing with anxiety, stress, life change, job change, family illness, the, the fear of potential illness, all of the disruption socially in our world. This has been easily the, la the hardest year of my 42 years on this planet. So I think there's a sense in which all of us can identify with this idea of being, of, of, of laboring and being heavy laden. So I wanna ask you, I want you to think about, what is it that you are laboring for? What are you working for? What are you working towards? What is it that you're aiming at? Jesus, uh, in, a, in earlier in chapter 11, talked about um, the people of this world and how impossible they are to please. Go back to eleven sixteen. He says, but to what shall I compare this generation? It is like children sitting in the marketplace and calling to their playmates. We played the flute for you and you did not dance. We sang a dirge and you did not mourn. Now, some of the imagery there may be lost, but he's basically saying like, there's some kids in, in the park. And they play a fun song, but the kids who are standing, the kids that are too cool for school, that are standing on the edge of the park, they won't dance when they play the fun song. They play a dirge, a sad song, and they won't mourn. So it's like, we can't please you. What, what can we do to please you? He continues, for John came neither eating nor drinking, and they say he has a demon, right? I can understand that. If I met a guy who didn't eat or drink, I'd be like, demon, that's, that's the only explanation, right? This guy doesn't want to drink. All right, verse 19, the son of man came eating and drinking, and they say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners, yet wisdom is justified by her deeds. So this is the, the same idea, right? He goes, we can't win. John comes and he's, he's fasting. He doesn't eat, doesn't drink. I don't know how he's alive, but he doesn't eat, doesn't drink. And they say, well, he must have a demon, right? I come eating and drinking the opposite. And you go, I'm a, I'm a glutton and I'm a sinner and I'm eating with tax collectors. And we just, we can't please you. So here's the thing. I, I don't know what you're laboring for. But if at any level, what you're laboring for is the affirmation and acceptance of the people around you, you, that's a losing game. It'll never happen. You play the flute, they won't dance. You play a dirge, they won't mourn. You eat and drink, they call you a glutton and a sinner. You don't eat and drink, they, they say you have a demon. There's no winning. As long as your eyes are on the people around you and everything you're laboring for is so that they will think you're impressive, they will think you're accomplished, they will think you're smart, they will think you're wealthy, they will think you're secure, they will think, they will think, they will think, whatever. It doesn't matter. The best thing, the worst thing, could be anything that you want other people to think, it's impossible to satisfy them. You will labor without end. Jesus goes, if you're laboring, come talk to me. If, if you are spending your energy on the approval of other people, come be with me. It'll be different. I promise. We'll talk about how in just a moment. Secondly, he says, those who are heavy laden. What are you heavy laden by? What, what is the burden on your back? 
What is it in your life that has become burdensome to you, right? This is the, the image here is of a donkey, right? That you are, that you are burdened uh, with, with, you know, packages and, and things to carry through life and it is weighing you down. What is it? What's weighing you down? Jesus here in chapter 12 goes right into a story about how the Pharisees were weighing the people down with, with religion. They were laying them down with extra rules and extra expectations and extra ways in which they had to prove themselves worthy. What are you bearing? What have you put on your own back or what have you allowed other people to put on your back? What are you laden with? Jesus offers rest for your soul. How? Come to him and you are accepted. No questions asked. You are in. He paid the way. There is no earning of love or acceptance or grace or mercy or rest. It's done and it's yours. All you have to do is come to him and he gives you everything. There, there is no, uh, there's no fighting for approval. There's no performing for approval. There's no playing the flute in the park, hoping that he will like you or playing a dirge and hoping you can at least get some more. There's none of it. You're in. All you got to do is come. That's it. That's the ask. Come to me. If you're heavy laden, if you're burdened, if you're laboring, and I will give you rest. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. This is, this is Jesus' use of irony and a little bit of sarcasm. Because the only time the word yoke is used in, in, in real life first century Palestine is talking about cows, right? And, and the wooden bar that yokes two cows together so that they can pull a trailer or pull something that's going to do something to the ground. I'm not a farmer. Get off me. Uh, but uh, uh, So that's what a yoke is. And the burden is about donkeys. And so he's listening in this moment going, listen, you are acting like a cow. You're acting like a donkey. You're taking on burden. You're taking on a yoke that isn't for you to take on. Let me take it. Let me pull the trailer. You just ride along. If you can yoke yourself to me, if you can be the other cow and I'll be the strong one, I'll pull. You just got to go along for the ride. I will do all the heavy lifting for you. Bearing the burden and pulling the weight are not your job. Let him do it. This is the offer. Because I'm gentle and lowly. Come and find rest. I'm approachable. You can know me. You can be with me. And I will carry you through all of these difficult times. Every yoke you've ever put on has been burdensome and heavy. Yoke yourself to Jesus and you will experience a soul level rest. How? Go to verse 29. He says, take my yoke upon you and learn from me, right? So what had happened in the first century is rabbis had taken on this metaphorical language. And so the yoke of a rabbi, borrowing from this agrarian metaphor, would be the, the way in which it is to follow that rab rabbi. The life that they had taken on, their disciples would take on with them. And they called it the yoke, right? It was the, the way of being with that rabbi, the way to follow that rabbi. Jesus says, 
take my yoke as your rabbi, as your leader, as your teacher, take on my yoke and learn from me. Learn from me. Learn what? What would Jesus teach us? Well, just like any good rabbi, that rabbi had adopted a way of life, certain convictions, certain commitments that he would abide by, and his disciples were expected to follow in his footsteps. That's what it meant to take on the yoke. So if we are to take on the yoke of Jesus, that means we are to be like Jesus, which is to say to be gentle and lowly. Gentle and lowly is the way. Gentle and lowly is not just the heart of Jesus, not just what can, can make us be drawn to him because he is accessible and approachable. We want to be in the midst of someone gentle and lowly, but he then also teaches us to be gentle and lowly. So what does that mean? Well, we've already talked about this. To be gentle, to be meek, is to know the source of our power, to know the purpose of the power we've been given. So it is to wake up every morning and acknowledge, I am alive because Jesus made me alive. I, I can breathe because Jesus has given me breath. I have gifts and skills and strength and weakness because they have been granted to me by God. I can read, I can see, I can talk, I can do everything I can from him. And because it's from him, the purpose for those things is also from him. So we walk not passively, not dominantly, but confidently knowing the source of our power is not within us. It is from him and therefore for his purposes. And the more we can learn that, the more free we get. Why? Because if we are the source of our own power, then we are responsible for it. If we are the source of our own power, then we take all the credit and all the blame. If we are the source of our power and we will consistently overestimate that power, then we are consistently trying to live up to our own expectations. That is an impossible rat race that we will never catch up on. Instead, we wake up every morning acknowledging the fact that everything we have comes from God and is for his purposes. And so we walk meekly, we walk gently, not demanding our own way, but deferring to the authority of God and the purpose of God in our life. Secondly, we are lowly. He teaches us how to be lowly. I think for so many of us, our, our self-talk is killing us. So much of the kind of modern self-talk that what, what we say to ourselves about who we are over-inflates our sense of self, right? Can't tell you how many times I have seen painted on the outside of a salon something about me being a goddess. I don't like the implication there, but that's the messaging, right? That I'm a goddess and that I, I've got everything I need, all the power and I'm awesome and I just have to live my truth and live my identity. And I'm telling you, that's a burden you cannot bear. Uh, Tim Keller in his amazing little book, The Freedom of Self-Forgetfulness, says this, up until the 20th century, traditional cultures, and this is still true of most cultures in the world, 
always believed that too high a view of yourself was the root cause of all evil in the world. Our belief today, and it is deeply rooted in everything, is that people misbehave for lack of self-esteem and because they have too low a view of themselves. The essence of gospel humility is not thinking more of myself or thinking less of myself. It is thinking of myself less not thinking less of myself as in modern cultures or less of myself as in traditional cultures, simply thinking of myself less. Walking the path of gentle and lowly is to daily acknowledge that you are not, but he is. That's what Jesus modeled for us. And it is so incredibly attractive to want to be near someone who is like that. And then once we draw near to him, guess what he does? He goes, great, let me show you how to be like this. And so that we can be so incredibly attractive to other people who labor and are heavy laden and are in need of rest, that we can be not just recipients, but also producers of the rest that we so desperately need. Let's pray. Jesus, knowing that your heart is gentle and lowly is such an encouragement to me to be the kind of person that we don't have to perform for, that we don't have to try to impress that we don't have to uh, kind of put on airs for, that we don't have to talk in different ways or act in different ways. We could just be who we are, broken and needy, tired, burdened, heavy laden, laboring for things that we will never earn, but that with you, we have been given everything that we need. So Lord, first and foremost, draw us to your heart. May we see you, experience you this way. I pray against the lies that would say, yeah, but he also has wrath. Yeah, but he's also powerful. Yeah, but he's also going to judge. All of that's true. All of that's true. And yet it is not your heart. And all those things are reserved for those who just will not come to you. So you say, I am gentle and lowly in heart. I will give you rest for your soul. All you have to do is come to me. So Lord, I pray that we would. We would come to you, know your heart, be trained by you, taught by you to be gentle and lowly ourselves and then be purveyors of rest to the people around us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Now, as always, we're gonna to transition to a time of response. The band's going to come back and lead us in another song. Um, we're going to take communion together. Um, we're going to give together, encourage you uh, to continue to give out of generosity, modeling uh, the, the life of generosity that Jesus modeled for us. Um, but before we do any of that, we're going to take a moment in silent reflection to think and pray and consider what we've heard today. So let's do that together.